Good morning, church. If you'll take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn again to the book of Nehemiah. Today we'll be finishing chapter 8, starting with verse 9 and concluding with verse 18. And as I read these words, remember that these are the very words of God himself. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who provided the people with understanding, said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. Then all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate with great gladness, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then, on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should make the report heard and make a proclamation of it passed throughout all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was exceedingly great gladness. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the legal judgment. Thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as we always do, we will pray and ask God's blessing on this time. Father, we, your people, regularly need the nourishment that comes from your word. And we know that only by the power of your Holy Spirit can any receive it. So we ask that he work in our midst this morning, delivering to us this message of truth which is today particularly needful for our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll begin this message this morning by telling you a story. There was once a young man who boarded a ship headed for a distant country. The world was at war, 
And foreign powers were aligning together to conquer all lands, near and distant. This youth had read in the newspaper about the growing danger, and he was eager to serve his family and community, to protect the home and people that he had known and loved. Enlisting in the draft early on, he had gladly accepted a frontline commission and joined a company of equally enthusiastic soldiers. They began the long journey into the darkness and dangers of war. After a months-long voyage and weeks of on-the-ground training, he, with his companions, finally reached the lines of battle. The day had come, and he yearned for the opportunity to dispatch the enemy empire and prove himself a brave warrior and win glory for his family and for his family name. Within minutes of the first offensive maneuver of his battalion, however, while racing across that smoking plain, his foot happened upon a hidden device, which led to an explosion, and then for him, all was darkness. He had stepped on an enemy landmine. One of the company medics quickly reached him, was able to stop the bleeding, and get him safely away from the dangers of that combat. And then began the hardest part of his journey, the long and lonely road home. All he could think of was how great a failure he had been. The entire return voyage, the bus ride now in a handicapped seat, the first time up the steps of his childhood home on crutches, all he could think about was failure. Now, I could finish that story a number of different ways. You could say that when he got home, he got a warm welcome from family and friends. You could say that he got a nice meal prepared by his mother. That would be special. He got an honorable discharge from the military with a stipend for his injury. Maybe he got a purple heart, or maybe he even got a handshake with the President of the United States. But in the scheme of that, I what's going on in this young man's life and what he's going to need for the future, I don't think that any of those things is really substantial enough to buoy him for the struggles ahead. I don't think that any of that is really going to be significant enough to matter. It's, it's not what he needs in this moment. What is going to give this kid hope? What is going to strengthen him with the bravery and courage to face his now much more difficult life. What will protect his mind and his heart in those moments when the distressing thoughts come back to haunt him? Well, beloved, there is only one answer. And Ezra and Nehemiah know what that answer is. We're now three weeks into this covenant renewal ceremony of the returned exiles in chapter 7, Nehemiah called the church roll, so to speak, and made sure that everyone was present for the beginning of the ceremony. In chapter 8, last week, we, we read about how Ezra brought the word of God at the request of the congregation. And in obedience to the law, he read the entire Pentateuch to a people of one heart and mind who were eager to follow the Lord. Before we even get to verse 9 this morning in our text... You have to ask yourself this one question. 
what is the proper response to Ezra's reading of the law of God? What is the proper response? Some of you might be thinking, is, is this a trick question? The congregation, as one man, we read in the word, weeps at the reading of God's word. Verse 9 says, all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Here's the question again, posed a little bit differently. Is that not the proper response to the reading of God's word? Reading that leads to meditation, that leads to mourning of one's sin, that leads to repentance. Think about that for a minute. Is that not a glorious response to reading the word of God? It is. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus himself mourned at the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Paul mentions a godly sorrow which produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Is it not appropriate to mourn and weep when we open the word of God and see in it ourselves and our depravity and our need for Christ? Of course it is. Of course it is appropriate, but not always appropriate. Not always. You can see that in verse 9. Nehemiah, he's been here the whole time. He wasn't present last week, or at least his name wasn't mentioned. But together with Ezra and their Levitical assistants, they come forward and speak together to the people. They say, do not mourn. Or weep. This is not the proper response. Stop crying. Stop it. Knock it off. The Levites keep at it for a little while. If you skip down to verse 11, they've explained the law to the people and they're doing some altar call counseling, if you will allow me. That's a bit tongue in cheek. Be still. Do not be grieved, the legacy standard says. Be quiet, the ESV says. What's the point? This is not the appropriate day. For weeping, control yourselves, get it together, man. There's no crying in baseball or at the Feast of Trumpets, for that matter. The next question then is, well, why not? Governor Nehemiah, Priest Ezra, you guys don't get it. When you read the word to us, we saw our sin. We saw how far our family has fallen and, and how far we have yet to go. We know what God thinks of us. At this rate, we don't have a chance. And they give the reason three times in this text that you must not, in this case, mourn before Yahweh. Verse 9, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. Verse 10, this day is holy to our Lord. Verse 11, this day is holy. The thrice use of the term holy. This day is a holy day. And I believe what we're meant to see is something special is taking place on this particular day. What does it mean for the day to be holy? How does that make it significant? Why would weeping and mourning be a prohibited activity on this day of the Feast of Trumpets, leading into the celebration of the Day of Atonement and then ultimately concluding with a weeks-long festival in the Feast of Booths. First, 
This day is holy because this is what Yahweh called it. He commanded these days as holy convocations in three separate places in the Pentateuch, in Leviticus 23, in Numbers 29, and probably referred to what I read last week in Deuteronomy 31. These passages make it clear that holy means unique, set apart, significant, and preeminent among other days. Now, the second thing you need to know is that holy days are to be marked with gladness before Yahweh your God. The Bible says, your son and your daughter and your male and female slaves and the Levite who is within your gates and the sojourner and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in the place where Yahweh, your God, chooses for his name to dwell must be filled with gladness. Deuteronomy 16, 11. My parents growing up never threw big birthday parties for my brother and I. We got to go to a lot of other kids' birthday parties, which maybe we got the better end of the deal that way. Kids eat these events up, and, and you know it's a labor of love for parents to throw a big birthday party uh, for their kids. There's lots of games. There's lots of riled up energy. There's lots of sugar, lots of money at times. And, and the kids are there to have fun. And that's what the parents want. I want my child to enjoy this day. I want them to know that they're significant. Um, but, but the parents, too, have something else in mind. They don't, they don't just want their child to have fun, but they want to create enjoyable memories for their family and for this child. They want them to think back on those younger years and say, oh, I remember that with joy. I remember the celebration. I remember the songs and the cake and the ice cream and all of those things. Now, in order to achieve this goal, parents have an unspoken rule on birthdays. Nobody cries. No one is allowed to cry. No weeping, no mourning on the birthday. Oh, no. Little Johnny keeps losing at the skee-ball game. I think I see him starting to tear up. Quick, somebody give him some candy. Take him to another game. Shove pizza in his mouth. Whatever it takes... It's your best friend's birthday, buddy. There's no crying. Unless you're pregnant, you're not allowed to cry today. <laughs> now, that's a bit silly, I know, but you get the point. We, we want the day to go well so that it will be remembered well. And that brings us to the third thing about these holy days. They were made for the purpose of reminding the people of Israel of something. You're made to remember Things that Yahweh has done. Take the Feast of Booths at the end of this passage, for example. It's meant to remind the people of Israel that their forefathers were made to dwell in makeshift tents as they traveled from Egypt to the Promised Land. Think back on this great deliverance God did when he brought you out of Egypt and how you guys had to make your own little tent structures all the way through the wilderness to get to the Promised Land. So these three pieces of holy evidence given to us. This is a holy convocation. You're to be glad and you're to remember. Now put them into this moment right here in this text. Read the story arc the way the assembly of Israel should have read the story arc. A day set apart as a holy assembly. A day where the people are to remember how their ancestors were delivered from enslavement in Egypt. 
How he gave them temporary dwellings along the way to shelter them. How he brought them to the promised land and they settled safely there. And how they built the temple of God and the wall of Jerusalem. At this point, you should be asking yourself, which exodus are we talking about here? Which exodus are we talking about here? Are we talking about remembering the first exodus? But wait, Chris, everything that you just read sounds like what this group of people has just been through. And that's exactly the case. God has saved his people all over again from bondage to slavery. And here they are by his providence, finished with the temple and finished with the wall, right here at the Feast of Booths, which is supposed to divinely connect the dots for them. And everybody's crying. Stop. Stop crying. You're missing the point. So Ezra... Nehemiah and company say, no more crying, only rejoicing. They tell them in in essence, everybody go home and eat something fatty and bust out the Chardonnay. It's a paraphrase of verse 10. No one in the community is to go without. If you have extra stuff, invite your friends over and share it with them. Because you've all been delivered, so everybody must celebrate together. Now, I don't want to give anybody whiplash at this point, but someone might be asking the question, but isn't there an appropriate time to mourn? When do we lament our sin and look long on our imperfections and remember again our need for a Savior? Solomon echoes that thought when he said, there is a time for everything under the sun. He said there's a time for laughter, and of course there is also a time for mourning. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Sorrow and mourning are particularly important to get to and live balanced in the Christian life. I've mentioned in the past how expedited our grieving in America is. We do a disservice to ourselves and also to those around us, to our community, because of how brief we make our seasons of mourning. Don't hear me downplaying the role of sorrow in the Christian life. It has an important function. As Christians must maintain, excuse me, as if Christians must maintain some kind of perpetual smile on their face at all times. Very soon, these exiles will be mourning. They'll be dressed in sackcloth. They'll be going through the cases in the law where they have sinned. And we'll get there in chapter 9. But just consider... Here in this moment, how the whole plot line of God zoomed right past the people. Thousands of Jews captive in Babylon for their persistent sin against Yahweh. And then a sudden decree of release for wave after wave for a new exodus back to the promised land. Each caravan is given safe passage through a desert filled with enemies and perils. Reconstruction of the temple of God is initiated and finished notwithstanding a lot of internal conflict within the congregation. The rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall is undertook and finished in 52 days, no less. Also, while there was a lot of outside conflict around the congregation of Israel, it just so happens that these projects are finished at the beginning of a season of feasting, of holy days. The concise list of who is Israel is found and every name is checked to ensure that God's people are all present. 
And the people who once were estranged from God through sin and banishment are asking for the word of God to be read over them. And they're asking to commune again with Yahweh. Pastor Ezra steps forward and reads again the law of God in order to reinitiate the people's covenant with God. Israel, beloved, I've said this now three times. Remember, remember, remember. Israel is being reinitiated in this moment right here. This is such a significant point in the scriptures. God has, if you'll allow me, brought Israel back from the dead. Brought her, in a sense, back to life. And here's the issue. Here's the issue. Having been brought from slavery to freedom, having been brought from, in a sense, death back to life, she cannot stop thinking in this glorious moment about her sin and death. She can't stop thinking about it. The prodigal son has come home in repentance to the father. And even when the father clothes him in the best robe and puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and slaughters the fattened calf and tells his servants that it is time to party, that his lost son was found. But that son, in the father's embrace, won't stop crying about sin that's now been put away. You see how wrong it is, don't you? This is not the right time for crying. They've missed the deliverance narrative. They've failed to see the grace of God who has brought them home. They've forgotten and missed the promise of God that the seed of the woman would come forth from her children and one day crush the head of the dragon himself, finally set the bride free from all of her captivity to sin, and that this release in Nehemiah chapter 8, this moment is the next step in the arrival party of the Son of God to atone for the sins that these people can't get their eyes off of. Now, beloved, this is very instructive for each of us. There are Christians everywhere, and I know there are those of you here at CTK too. You tend towards a melancholy spirit. It can be for a number of different reasons. It could be life circumstances, hard providences, physical ailments, navel-gazing, analysis paralysis, worm theologies, misinterpreting John the Baptist's words, he must increase, therefore I must decrease, to meaning something along the lines of you should actually increase your negative thoughts about yourself so long as they're self-deprecating, you're fine. I don't think that's what John the Baptist was intending. Brothers, sisters, some of you may need to hear the words of Ezra, Nehemiah, and these Levites this morning and hear them loud and clear. Stop crying. Stop mourning. Stop weeping. Knock it off. Cut out the introspection. Repent of all the I am a worm stuff. At best, walking around like that is misunderstanding the story that you have become a part of through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. At worst, it is your pride not wanting to give up thinking yourself so important and you look even to your faults so as to main eye contact with the most important thing in your life, that would be namely yourself, 
rather than fixing them on Calvary and celebrating that the Day of Atonement has come. If you'll look down at the end of verse 12, you'll see that these people were made to rejoice. And they finally, it clicked in their brains because, no, you should be celebrating on this holy day because God has enabled you to understand his word. God has enabled you to understand his word. And for those of you in Christ today, the spirit of God supernaturally through the gift of regeneration has enabled you to understand the word of the gospel and come to know God. Not just his word, but come to know him. As if it could get better than that, consider this. We were made through the Spirit of God to understand the Word, but before that took place, before we were able to make known, that the Word was made known to us, we were made known to the Word. The Word made flesh. Christ now knows us. Church, this is our story. This is our song. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released and I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is a picture of the well-ordered heart of the Christian. This is the one who knows the story. This is the one who has given up looking to himself and found that all of his needs are met in Jesus Christ. But, someone might say, what about all of my problems? They don't just go away. It would be easy if that were the case. I don't want to sound trite in the way that I say this, but in light of the story that I just told, what problems? What problems? God is on your side. You have been justified through the blood of Christ. What problems? No matter how hard the challenge God allows in your life, when you stand before the throne of grace, the Bible testifies, you will look back on it and say, that was light and momentary. So how do I get there, Chris? I would encourage you to remember that you were created for one thing above all else, and that is to know God. J.I. Packer said, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Yes, that does sound idealistic and all too easy. But does your thought life testify to that? Does the survey that you take of yourself as you examine yourself reveal that deep inside you desire to know Christ as the answer to your sin problem. And in knowing him, you have greater desires day after day to make him known to others. Brothers and sisters, there are seasons of mourning. Your entire life is not that season. Nowhere in the list of the fruit of the Spirit do we find sorrow or melancholy. Rather, joy and peace, and self-control. Someone in here is probably navel-gazing right this very second. 
well, it sounds like I'm just falling away from grace then. I don't feel any of those things. I don't know if I can hold on. Stop mourning and weeping. You can't hold on. Give up trying to hold on. If Christ is holding you, then you cannot fall. To quote Packer again, your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. These old covenant Jews were made to know the word. And in the new covenant, the word first knows you. So how do I find strength in that? Where can I get some of this joy? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because most of you noticed that I skipped over one of the most recognizable and significant verses in all of the Bible. Do not be grieved, they say in verse 10, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. This is one of those verses that gets a lot of airtime on Christian radio. It's smeared across motivational posters. It's put on the cover of graduation Bibles. It is set in silver at the bottom right corner of the Christian calendar beneath the picture of the kittens and puppies playing with yarn. Have you ever really thought about what this verse means? Have you ever thought about this? The joy of the Lord is your strength. I think that most people misunderstand this verse. I think most people read this verse and they see it in transactional terms. God is looking out over the sheep of Christ. He sees one who is struggling to make it through their day. So he reaches down into his pocket. He pulls out a little pinch of the attribute of joy. And he sneaks it into a Bible study or a fellowship time or a sunset or whatever. You were low on joy. So God sent in the prescription for the supplement. And the Spirit of God made sure that it got delivered on time and taken in the proper doses And that is how God strengthens us through our trials. Now, I don't mean to sound irreverent when I speak that way. Joy is definitely a gift of God's grace. It is one of the various fruit of the Spirit. It is the right response for all the good things that God has done. My question is this. Is that what Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10 is talking about? Is it talking about a transaction between us and God where we say, God, my joy tank's a little low. I need some help. Can you put some joy into my heart? Think about it as Ezra and Nehemiah might have looked about it. Exiles of Judah, your work on the city is done. Why are you so sad? Allow God to gift you some joy as the answer to your problem. I don't think that's what's going on in verse 10. I think we're meant to see this charge from Ezra and Nehemiah not in transactional terms, but in relational terms. Here's what I mean. I want you to think back to the story that I told at the beginning of this sermon, the one about the boy who was injured at war. That young soldier is going to limp his way through life thinking about his failure or what he perceives to be a failure. And some people might say, I don't know why, I mean, he has a medal commemorating his sacrifice. He got a lifetime disability package. He gets respect from those in his community for his service. There was one massive detail, though, that I left out of that story. The detail that 
I think would dispel all the dark thoughts and make this young man to stand on one leg with greater strength than he ever stood before on two. When he walked into the living room to be received by his family, what was the expression on his father's face? Because, church, that changes everything. I don't care what medal he gets, presidential medal of honor or otherwise. If the father was not pleased with the son, nothing in the world matters. Now, I'm going to try and get through this. Imagine that he comes home to no medal and no entourage. The world, after all, is still going on and people's eyes are all turned towards the front lines. But the first thing that he sees when he walks in the door is a father with a full smile. The sight of his son creates belly laughter and tears of joy, which are quickly followed by an embrace and a whisper in his son's ear, I am so proud of you. You served us so well. It's not the joy of the gift that matters. It's the joy of the Father that matters. These men aren't talking about a gift of God that is in some way separated from God. Look at the verse. It is the joy of Yahweh. It is His attribute, not a supplement. It is His joy. It is his bliss, his pleasure, his felicity, his elation, his gladness that exudes from him. And if it can get better than that, it does. Because the father's joy to save his people Israel is unconditional. That son in the war story went away and did something and the father was rightly proud and filled with joy. But we did nothing, and yet God delighted to save us. It pleased him to save us. What did or could the Jews here in this story do to make amends for their sins? What did they do to earn the release and secure safe passage for home? And how did their deeds merit a successful rebuilding of the temple and wall? How will they ever be able to hold on to God and not fall back into idolatry? What was it? What did all of this? It was the joy of the Father to save his people. Yahweh your God is in your midst, Zephaniah says. A mighty one who will save. He will be joyful over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with joyful singing. Church, hear this this morning. These people needed to celebrate on this holy day at the commandment of Yahweh, but they were weak from looking at themselves. They needed to be strengthened to celebrate the holy day, and they needed to be strengthened by the holy joy in the heart of God the Father, who was pleased, he was delighted, to, he rejoiced in bringing his people out of captivity and returning them to the promised land. And Christian, if you can get that rooted in your mind, 
that God delighted to save you, that it was his pleasure, that he was excited about it. I mean, when you consider this kind of joy, what need do you have to look at yourself? Is it really worth questioning your ever-changing motives? Are you going to uncover something that will finally make the Lord love you and find joy in you? Paul told the Romans, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Because it was the Father's joy to do it that way. Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. You were the fewest of all the peoples, but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. What else, church, can strengthen us like this? What else can protect you like this? The language here in the text, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That term for strength is like a strong tower. could also be the joy of the Lord is your protection. Some of you with that melancholy spirit need that mental protection. What does that? Looking at the face of your father and seeing his joy to save you. So when you sin or you stumble or you fail at your Christian responsibilities, when you're down in the dumps and you're told to get back in there and carry the fight, but you just don't think you can, would you turn around and see the face of your father full of joy? It is his joy to save and to call us out and sanctify us in Christ Jesus. I'll say it even stronger than that. That joy, his joy to do that, will never nor can it ever be quenched. It will never go away. It will never not be God's delight to save us. He will always, in his joy, save his people from their sins. It comes from his holy character and not, as Moses said, in anything in us. Now, we will occasionally, from time to time, need our Heavenly Father to discipline us, to whip us into shape, so to speak. But because of Christ, Christian you will never lose the good pleasure of the Father. He delights to save his people, and he is delighting in doing that in your life right now. You were saved at the point of your justification. He is saving you through sanctification, and you will be saved at glorification from beginning to end, and God is happy about it. He loves it. This is the best story I could have ever told. I sought the Lord in darkest night. You just sang a few minutes ago. He saved me by his glorious might. So do what? Look upon his face and let your gloom be turned light. Now God delights to save his people and he wants them to remember that. So in verse 13, as we conclude our passage today, the heads of households get together with Ezra for maybe a, a small group study, men's Bible study, Early Promise Keepers meeting. I was trying to think up names for men's group this week, and I almost put down Bibles and bacon. <laughs> and then the Spirit of God reminded me that Ezra was not passing out bacon. <laughs> no thick-cut pig bellies. Um, that was close. Whew. But what you're meant to see in this last half of this 
section of Nehemiah that we've begun in the last several weeks is this covenant renewal celebration was not just a formality. I think for many years I've read Ezra and Nehemiah, and it always just felt like it was this canned event. The more that I'm studying and reading it, I'm seeing these people were committed to doing everything Yahweh's way. Here on day two, as you see in your text, they went back to the book, and Ezra pointed them to the specific directions for how they were to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, depending on your translation. We know the exact date that this took place. It was October the 8th, 445 B.C. This next holy convocation doesn't take place until the 15th. So they met together for this Bible study on the second day or October the 8th. And then they've got about a fortnight until the actual Feast of Booths takes place. So they've got to prepare and prepare they do. They send out a proclamation for everyone who is going to participate. And they're to cut wood from these various trees to make the tabernacles or tents. And they're to bring it to Jerusalem and make a temporary campsite resembling those that their ancestors made on the journey from Egypt to the promised land. And Nehemiah tells us in verse 17 that the entire assembly made booths and lived in them for the week-long feast. Everybody whose name was read off, the previous chapter that we read in Ezra, everybody was present and everybody celebrated the Feast of Booths. Which brings me to the second half of verse 17. It makes it sound like, depending on your translation, that the whole Feast of Booths festival hadn't taken place since the days of Joshua. But we know that that can't be right because back in Ezra 3, we already went through this, the first wave of exiles had already commemorated this same event. We should understand then that because the people were not gathered together as one man and everybody with one heart wanted to celebrate this event, that it hadn't been celebrated in this way or you might say with this spirit. All the people gathered. Ezra reading the Pentateuch every single day of the feast. And then there was a closing ceremony you see there in verse 18. So here you have all of the people made to know the law, all of the people charged to rejoice in the Lord, and all of the people making tabernacles to remember Yahweh's deliverance. So what's our takeaway this morning? Know the word, rejoice in the Lord, and set aside time each day to do those things again. Now, I could conclude that way, and those are absolutely true things. You need to know the word. You need to rejoice in the Lord. You need to do these things every single day. It may sound like Christianese, but each day you should build time into your schedule to commune with God over his word and kindle again in your heart rejoicing of him. If you're not doing this, beloved, I'll say this at the outset, what I'm about to say and all that I have said won't serve you. It might sound nice to talk about how much God rejoices over us, but if you're not continually seeking his face, you'll fall into the same trap that these folks did. Allow me just briefly, though, to go back through the themes that I pointed out earlier. In order to initiate the long-promised new covenant, the everlasting covenant in the words of Ezekiel, 
the one that would not need to constantly be renewed because of our unfaithfulness. In that covenant, God built the tabernacle. I know your thoughts will probably jump to 1 Peter and that we as the church are the living stones. The purpose of us is to be put together as a holy temple for the Lord, the Bible says. That is true. But the people that left from Egypt who built those tabernacles in the wilderness built them around the one tabernacle where Moses met with God. Even here in Nehemiah 8, you may have noticed that some of the people, because of the room and space restrictions in Jerusalem, had to build their tabernacles right up next to and in the courts of the temple of God. Now, what is this about? What is this ultimately pointing us to? And it's pointing us to John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt, the word literally is tabernacled, with us. Therefore, when Christ comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The tabernacles remind the people coming out of Egypt and the people coming out of the second exodus that God delivered them, but God built the final tabernacle. He built the body. He prepared the body for Jesus Christ. And this is what makes our covenant, our new covenant, so superior to the old. This is the antitype. This is the fulfillment, the telos of the promise of the Father. This is what makes our God so far superior to all other gods. The gods of the nation say, come and get me. If you can. If you can meet my standards. If you can uphold my list of rules. And by the way, I changed my mind, so you'll never really know for sure if you got it or not. The gods of the nation say, come and get me. But our God in Genesis 3 said, I'm coming to get you. And Jesus said, I'll kill whatever dragon I have to in order to get my bride. I'll suffer what pain it costs, but I will know her, I will take joy in her, and I will live forever with her. God built a tabernacle in Christ when he became flesh. God built the tabernacle. Because in the new covenant, the word knows us. He came to the tabernacle with us. So church, when you can't shake that feeling of disappointment in yourself and you mourn and weep because of the sin that remains in you, stop, consider, turn away from yourself and look. The Father's face is filled with joy for you. He delights in saving you. He delighted in it so much that his own son took on a body, is restricted now, in a sense, to this bodily form, He's tabernacling with us because he wanted to be with us. He delighted in saving us. And don't forget it and remember it and celebrate it. Don't be a Gnostic either. Don't hate the things of the world that we use to remember this goodness of God for us. 
Don't confine your commemoration to just a little quiet time every single day. Get out the steak and get out the wine and invite covenant members over and celebrate together that now, this day, and forever, our God dwells with us. Father, we thank you that you were pleased to do it this way, that our salvation could have looked any number of different ways, but this is the story that you told. And what a story it is. How incredible. So how, Father, can we as your children, knowing this truth, walk around with sullen faces? Oh, Lord, there will be days of mourning. Surely there are times of weeping and sorrow. But, Lord, let us see again your face that you are pleased to do salvation this way. And because of Christ, you are pleased with us. And you delight in us. And you rejoice over us. Remind us of this when times get tough. Strengthen our hearts and our minds. And now as we go to your table, let us celebrate with hands and minds and mouths and taste buds. Let us remember it all again that Christ Jesus died to save his bride. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.